It's a pleasure to be here once again, to be able to open the Word with you and, and enjoy the Scriptures together and, and pictures of the Lord Jesus and teachings of the Lord Jesus. It's just truly a pleasure. Um, this morning's message uh, has taken weeks to prepare, but uh, 31 years of living to, to merit the need for a message like this. I've been alive for that long. And in that time, I've discovered things about myself that are less than desirable. I think each of us have things that we, tendencies, you know, character flaws. You have character flaws? Did you have character flaws? I got a few. I got a few. You just ask my mother. She'll tell you about my character flaws. No, no, no. She loves me. But still, um, there are things that I struggle with, and, and one of them is bitterness and unforgiveness. It's, it's, man, it's just one of those things where you just... When you feel like you've been wronged, when you've been hurt in some way, just getting over that is so tough. And it's, it's one of those things that, and, and I hope this resonates with you if it does, as it does with me. I preach this message not from the position of having arrived, not as a, like, I figured it out, and here it is. This is the key. But this, what we will talk about today, will take a lifetime to apply. You know, it's a daily effort. This isn't a one-time fix-all and you've got it. You know, these are the keys that we apply uh, to everyday circumstances. It's a constant application of the mind to these truths that we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 primarily. We're also going to look back at Genesis 15, uh, sorry, Genesis 50 temporarily. And then we will round out our message in Ephesians chapter 4, giving a New Testament application um, from the epistles on what we've kind of learned through the Old and the, and the Gospels. Uh, with that, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning that you've given us. Thank you for the time that we have to spend in your word, Father, for the blessing of, of this uh, one-mindedness that we can have around your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can gather being forgiven by him, by his bloodshed on the cross, Father, and then have the power by your Spirit within us to apply these truths to our lives and, and make these changes and live lives that are pleasing to you. We give you thanks in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. The message, if I were to title it, uh, would be forgiveness. Why must I forgive my brother? Pretty reasonable message name. Uh, forgiveness. And in Matthew chapter 18 is where we're going to be looking at a parable from the Lord Jesus as he answers a question from Peter. But, uh, you know, we have to ask ourselves, why is it important to discuss forgiveness? Why is this merit our time this morning, among other things, above other things? And why is forgiveness itself such an important topic? If you are a Christian and you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and you recognize that before God you stand condemned as a sinner, and we all know that we've done things wrong, that we're not inherently good people, that we do bad things and those things make us guilty of the judgment of God. The wages of sin is death. Later on we'll discuss how that there is no, the currency for bad works, for evil, is not good works. One does not erase the other. There's no system in the world where that works out. You don't have a robber who gets off because he, gave the, he donated the money. You don't have a murderer who gets away with it because he saved a life at some point. The currency for one thing, one bad, is not the opposite of that bad. It doesn't work that way. Something has to pay for that evil. And if you're a Christian, and you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're recognizing that the Lord Jesus paid the penalty for your sin on the cross, that the wages of that sin, the payment is death. If not yours, it had to be somebody else's. And uh, the Lord Jesus Christ was that perfect death that washed away that sin. It was the perfect payment that you in all of eternity in hell could never pay the full weight of it. The Lord Jesus Christ did in your place, in my place. 
So if you are a Christian in that sense, forgiveness is a central theme of your faith. The foundation of the Christian faith is built upon that unbounded love and mercy of God that was bestowed upon us at the cross. We read in Romans chapter 5, 8, that God commended his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love that line of that song. I love this song that, uh, that we're going to hopefully sing, well, you will hopefully sing next week. Stronger uh, than death, new every morn, my sins they are greater, his mercy, my sins they are great, his mercy is more. I like the song. I don't know it all that well, though. Uh, my sins they are many, his mercy is more. Forgive me. My sins they are many, his mercy is more. That is the fulcrum on which the uh, Christian faith pivots, is this mercy of God and this forgiveness that we have experienced. Uh, it would stand to reason, then, that given his love for us and given this forgiveness that we've experienced by God, that we as Christians, above all people, should be the most forgiving, having been forgiven so much. But do you find that to be the case always? Do you find that from those who profess to be Christians that believe this faith that we talked about, that they are forgiving to you? And do you find in your own heart that you struggle having the ability to forgive other people that wrong us? I mean, it's great on, the, you know, on paper. I was going to say the chalkboard. Nobody uses chalkboard anymore, do they? It's a whiteboard now. I'm getting to the point where I can say back in my day. That's not good. <laughs> back in my day, we did have chalkboards. And uh, so, I mean, like that kind of philosophy looks great on a chalkboard or a whiteboard or on paper. But when you apply it to the human experience, it's a really different thing altogether because now you've got your emotions involved, you know? And we get those emotions, man, those are sticky things, right? Um, so it's not always the case. I think that we can find each of us in our experience, we have maybe just that one person. Maybe take a moment and, uh, and you can say their name out loud if you want to. I'm joking, don't do that. We don't want that here. This is recorded. We don't want their name said out loud. That one person that maybe you struggle to forgive. That's reasonable, right? Can you think of that one person or maybe that one person who's struggling to forgive you? This adds some practicality to what we're talking about today that is very real, hopefully, for each of us. Um, our heart reaction in situations uh, where we've been wrong is the default to forgiveness and long-suffering. And yet, how often do we find that we jump to conclusions, we assume the worst, we create a narrative about a person based on hearsay or incomplete information, and ultimately end up not going to, what's the best case scenario out of this situation? It's always a worst case scenario. We always assume the worst. And once you've got those feelings based on that assumption, it's really hard to get rid of those, you know, even if what you ended up believing turns out to be untrue. Uh, instead of interacting with a heart with forgiveness toward other people, we tend to, I tend to, hold on to bitterness, to nurture my pride and my tender ego with ill feelings and thoughts that, that I believe that I'm entitled to because I've been wronged. I deserve to feel this way. I owe this to myself because I have been wronged. I'm justified in my ill feelings toward this individual. We feel like we've been betrayed that there's been a violation committed against the intimacy that we shared in this relationship, and we feel that our reaction is justified. Does this sound familiar at all? I hope so. I mean, this is me, to a T. I'm sorry, this is the dark side of John Slump, and we all have one. Don't, don't kid yourself. It's there. It's bad. Um, but this is true. This is what I struggle with, honestly. I'm being real with you. Uh, we believe that we stand on the side of justice against our fellow man, uh, forgetting all the while that the justice that we would want to mete out against this individual 
was withheld from us and poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? Like we think, I'm justified. I'm on the side of right because they were wrong. They deserve this and this. I'm right. No, nobody's saying you're wrong. Just saying that if God took that attitude with you, where would you be right now? And rest assured, you were forgiven a lot more from God than you will ever have to forgive of any individual individually or all of them collectively. The sum of all of your hurts and the sum of all of the wrongs against you will never even be a drop of water compared to the ocean of the wrongs that you committed against God. But we lose sight of that contrast. And this is the point of this parable that we're kind of working up to. Uh, you know, so we believe we stand on the side of justice here. We whisper the prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Yet all the while in the next breath saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. You remember that, that Jesus said in Luke 18. I'm thankful that I'm not like this guy, but God be merciful to me, a sinner. Like, somehow we feel like we can in one breath say the one and in the other say something completely different. And our inconsistency in this is evidence that we have either never experienced this boundless, limitless love of God at all, which is reasonable, or that we've simply lost sight of the tremendous debt that we have been forgiven. You've never experienced it, or you've simply forgotten it. And you don't view all of your interactions from the perspective of the cross. I think sometimes we imagine that bitterness and unforgiveness, this is a good one for me, are these discrete entities, you know, like this cup of water. And uh, we can hold it, we can hold on to it, we can tuck it away in a box, or in this case, in a glass. And I have all of my bitterness in this glass. And this glass, compared to this room, is relatively small. Nothing in this water is going to affect anything else in this room because I keep it in this glass. And that's how we think of these ill feelings, that we can just compartmentalize them and lock them off in a room all by itself. And, well, it's just a small part of my life. I'll just be bitter over in this corner of, the, of my life, right, and of my heart. And nobody goes in that corner anyways. It's just for coats and, and moth balls and things. So we just kind of tuck our bitterness and ill feelings into this part of our hearts. And we forget the scripture and be sure your sin will find you out. That's Numbers 32, 23. Sin will out. Sin in every form is inherently invasive. And sin doesn't respect the discrete boundaries that you make for it. You may put, but I cook broccoli, I, my, my kitchen, so my house is kind of small. I love it, but it's a little small, which means that when you cook broccoli in the kitchen, you smell broccoli everywhere, you know. I can't keep broccoli in the microwave, or at least the smell of broccoli in the microwave. Like, I'll cook broccoli in the morning for breakfast, I'll go to work, and I'll come home, I'll walk through the door, I'm like, it smells like garbage in this whole house. The smell of broccoli is everywhere. And such is the case in our hearts with sin, is that when you allow it place, it will permeate into every area of your life and poison every part of your being. It is, sin is likened to leaven, the scriptures say. Leaven, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You give it that little bit of place, it affects the entire whole. That is why sin needs to be dealt with in all forms with extreme prejudice. We don't always do that, I don't always do that, but this is the danger that we're up against, and this is the danger of holding on to something as serious as bitterness or unforgiveness, which is why we have to talk about it. The bitterness and unforgiveness that we choose to hold on to exacts a price that we are paying willingly, though perhaps unwittingly. And this is why we'll talk about this this morning. And I love this quote. Uh, Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And it is my hope that as we cover this topic for myself and for all of us here today, uh, as we consider these things, that we will be more inclined 
to follow the example of Scripture related to this topic of forgiveness. Now, with that by way of introduction, uh, we turn to Matthew 18, and we begin in verse 21. Matthew 18 and verse 21. Then, then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and children, and all that he had, and that payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest thou not also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentor till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. And the Lord will bless the reading of his word. Peter comes to Jesus and he asks this question, assuming two facts that we'll consider. When he asks this question, <clears throat> uh, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? He assumes that my brother will sin against me. People will wrong us. That's an assumption that Peter makes, and rightly so, because just as much as we can be assured that people will wrong us, we can be sure we're going to wrong them, right? Our brother will sin against us. Our sister will sin against us. Uh, and the second point is that I have a moral obligation to forgive my brother. Peter knew that there was a degree to which he was obligated to extend some measure, at least, of forgiveness. So my brother will sin against me, and I have a moral obligation to forgive my brother. Those are the two assumptions that Peter had when he came to Jesus. And his understanding thus far of forgiveness didn't require any additional teaching from the Lord Jesus. Like, he understood that concept, I'm going to be wronged and I have to forgive. But the question was not whether he had to forgive, but to what extent should he forgive? What's the limit? What is the upper limit of the forgiveness that we offer? How are we, what's the cap on that, you know? And he says, how about seven times? Seven times reasonable? I mean, I do that in a day, you know. Seven times is a very, very small amount. But Jesus' teachings would uh, take his disciples deeper in every form than the law ever did. Uh, whereas the law said, do not kill, what did Jesus say? He said that, uh, that hate and abusive language are murder in germ form. That the seeds of murder are found in hate and abusive language. So he said that if you say these things, that essentially is murder itself, because that's the seed of murder, is that hate. The law said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but Jesus taught that to look on a woman and to lust is to commit adultery in the heart. Looking and lusting is the same as adultery. Jesus' teachings would go deeper and in their application would be more powerful and would find so many more people guilty far more often than they themselves would have ever realized. And so naturally, his teaching in this manner relating to forgiveness 
will go deeper than Peter's understanding currently. So what's the limit of forgiveness? The lesson that Jesus was about to teach was that I am only expected to forgive to the, to the degree that I have been forgiven. That's the message. Right? You, can, you can go home now. We'll close in prayer and you can go home. No, there's more. There's more. The degree that I am expected to forgive my brother is just to the degree that I've been forgiven. That's it. As soon as my brother or sister's sin against me exceeds the sin that I've been forgiven by God, at that point I can stop forgiving. But will that ever happen? Absolutely not. And that is laid out here in this parable. Uh, we exist in an imperfect world with imperfect people, and the relationships that we have with these people, although they're precious and meaningful, are also imperfect, aren't they? You know, between a, a wife and a husband have their problems, a, um, a father and a son, a mother and a daughter, friendships, coworkers, all of these relationships will come flawed and imperfect because they're held by imperfect people. And we have to be really careful that we don't somehow develop and create these unrealistic expectations for the relationships, relationships that we're in. We put these unrealistic expectations on each other as to how we want to be treated and then respond strongly when we don't get that. And so the question that Peter asks, how about seven times? Jesus responds, not seven times, but 70 times seven. He replaces this exact number of seven with this kind of inexact number. The idea is far more than you realize. Not seven times, but far more than that. There is no limit to the amount of times we are to forgive our brother. But how is this possible? And on what basis are we obligated to extend limitless forgiveness to those who wrong us? And Jesus is answering this in this parable. I thought it was interesting. I looked at the word uh, forgive. I always like to look at the Hebrew word because, of course, the Bible wasn't written in English. And so you have to kind of look at the original, the Hebrew or the Greek, and see, like, what was the word used? Well, you know, what did it actually mean? And when I looked at that word forgiveness, it, uh, it, it's the word NASA, N-A-S-A. Not NASA, mind you, NASA. Uh, and it's used over 650 times in the Bible. And the first reference where it's used uh, related to forgiveness is in Genesis chapter, chapter 50. Perhaps you can turn back there for a moment. In Genesis chapter 50, we're going to take a look, step away from our parable for a moment, kind of look at the, um, one of the first mentions of this word. Not the first one, but one of the first. Genesis chapter 50. If you know the context of what's happening here, uh, you have Joseph, who is in Egypt. He is there, consequent to his brothers selling him. They're like, well, we don't want to just kill him. We can't make any money that way. So how can we make money? How can we profit from his demise, right? So they sell him um, to these like, travelers that go down into Egypt, and Joseph is in there. He's in prison. It's a whole other story, and it's a, it's a wonderful account to see him go from that to a position of power and prestige in Egypt. And he invites all his family after he's there. He invites, there's a famine in the land. He brings you know, his family in and everything, and his father Jacob. And in this particular portion of scripture, um, Jacob, Joseph's father, had died. You know, and Joseph's brothers are terrified now because they're like, well, now that our dad is dead, J uh, Joseph is going to want to exact revenge on us because uh, you know, we sold him uh, into Egypt. So they're kind of concerned, and rightly so. In uh, Genesis chapter 50 and verse 15, And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, 
So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren, and forgive their sin. For they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And it goes on and says these, these wonderful things Joseph said in, uh, in verse 19. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? Uh, but as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. That, that the evil intent they had for Joseph's demise was no match for God's plan who could work out good out of a horrible situation. It wasn't that what we were talking about really this morning. It's that God can take a horrible situation and bring something great out of it. Somehow we're bold enough to think we should understand how that process works. Uh, we don't. But we have, the, we have to have the faith to recognize that God can and does do that. If anybody knew what it meant to feel betrayed and hurt by the ones closest to him, it was Joseph. Again, if you know the account, and, and if you don't, hopefully what I just said there was a good summary. Um, to be betrayed by the ones that are closest to you. You would think that the greatest form of hatred that you could demonstrate for somebody else is to kill them. I mean, is there any worse way to hate somebody than to want them dead? I think there is. They not only wanted Joseph dead, they're like, how can we, just, how can we make money off of it? It's, no, it's a waste of a life to just kill him. Let's sell him. And so they profit from his death. Uh, they sold him as a slave. They didn't care for his fate. They didn't care for his future. And I don't think any of us have ever been betrayed or wronged quite to that degree where somebody wanted us dead but withheld from killing us just so that they could profit from us another way, right? You know, that's terrible. But there is one person who did. Does that sound like somebody that we know of? Somebody who was betrayed. Somebody who ultimately was killed. Somebody who, for no wrong of his own, was put to such demise. I think of the Lord Jesus Christ and his life on earth. The only thing worse than the pain of his rejection was the terms of his betrayal. You think of the ones that cried out, Hosanna in the highest, were the ones who not long after cried out, crucify him. You think of one of the ones who was closest to Jesus in his life on earth, Judas Iscariot. And it says of him in prophecy in Psalm 41, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Judas was one who was closest to Jesus and he betrayed him for a sum of money. And he betrayed him with a kiss on the cheek. The extension of intimacy was the seal of his betrayal. It isn't very often that you get the chance to find out exactly how much or little your love for somebody means to them, the degree to which they value your relationship, but the value Judas placed on Jesus was quantifiable. What was the value? How did he value Jesus? What did he betray him for? 30 pieces of silver, which was the value of a slave who was accidentally gored by an ox. Not all that much. Certainly not for the Lord Jesus. It was a pittance, and yet Judas considered it a bargain. It was all that the chief priests thought that Jesus was worth. And Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, who Jesus called friend in the garden. When you feel like you've been wronged, betrayed, and hurt by the actions of others, rest assured that when you bring your pain to Jesus, you're in good company. Because you stand in the presence of one who can empathize perfectly with the pain that you feel, having felt it himself. We read the scripture in Hebrews chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are yet without sin. Part of the reason that Jesus lived on earth as long as he did 
part of the reason was to qualify him as our high priest and intercessor in heaven to feel what we feel, to know the hurt and the pain and the betrayal and the suffering of life and the human experience, to know these things so that in heaven on our behalf, he can, un- he can un- not that he would need help understanding, but that he can personally experience it so that we know when we pray to him about the, the pain that we're feeling, he knows it, he's felt it, and he's felt it to a degree far greater than we could imagine. And so getting back to how Joseph responds to his brethren, he says that, you know, am I in the place of God? I, I can't withhold forgiveness because God hasn't withheld forgiveness. God meant for good what you meant for evil. And he says, he extends this kindness to them. He says, I will nourish you and your little ones. This is later on in Genesis chapter 50. God has the ability to use the evil intentions and actions of man to accomplish his purposes. Do you believe that? That God has the ability to use the evil intentions and actions of man to accomplish his purposes. We somehow, again, as I said before, feel like we should be able to anticipate that this action will lead to this result and that good should beget good. We don't ever think that that evil should beget good. And by, by that, I mean that something that we perceive as bad, something good should come out of it. It's not human nature to think that way. And yet, how does the dross get removed from metal? It is the fire and the heat that it feels that pulls it out, that makes it pure. It's abrasion and friction that smooths out rough surfaces, right? Good comes from pain. I wouldn't say that all the time, but in exercise, we talked about that this morning, right? Exercise hurts, it's painful, but ultimately it's good for you. In the life of Joseph, we see that God can take something that appears to be evil and make it good. In the death of Jesus, we can see that something that appears to be evil can turn out to be good. This is the work of God, and it is a mystery to us. We're required not to understand it in its full, but to believe in it, because God is faithful. One more thought. Before we return to Matthew, one more thought about that, uh, that Hebrew word, nasah. I found it interesting that um, of the 650 plus times that it's used, only 2% of the time is it translated forgive. Roughly 76% of the time it's translated as to lift up, bear, carry, or support. Think of that. To forgive. To lift up, to bear, to carry, or to support. You're like, oh, interesting. You know, uh, it implies two things. One, it implies that when we forgive, there's an element of effort involved. It's going to cost you something, okay? If you're going to forgive, it's going to cost you something, and it's not expected to be easy. To lift, to carry, to bear, to support, it will cost you something. Forgiveness is not the passive act of dismissal, but it's an intentional, decisive act whereby we take the conscious decision to lift the weight of guilt off our brother or sister. Did you get that? It is an intentional, deliberate act. We don't just passively hope it'll pass by, oh, the pain will subdue, like an exercise on Monday, and by Wednesday I'm feeling pretty good. I really didn't do anything, but it just feels better for no reason at all. It's just like I just, I just healed passively. Forgiveness is not passive. Forgiveness is active. Forgiveness is a choice. But it will cost you something. You have to sacrifice your pride, your sense of entitlement, and the satisfaction that we get from playing the victim feels good, that victim mentality. I'm not going to lie. I want to feel like I've been wronged, and I just want to wallow in it. But it's so wrong, and it's so hurtful, and it poisons you, and it poisons every aspect of your life. You become, you become a horrible person if you don't let this go. 
The second thing that that word, that meaning implies, to lift up, to bury, to carry, to support, to bury, to bear, to carry or support, it implies that forgiveness has this liberating effect on the one to whom it is applied. I have the ability, the privilege, and the responsibility to lift this weight off my brother or sister, to lift it up off of them, to lift that weight of guilt from them, to forgive. We have the ability to lift this weight of guilt off, to set people free, and in a small sense, we have the opportunity to extend to others the same mercy that we have received. That's a privilege. However, those that have received mercy do not always extend that mercy to others. And with that, we will turn back to Matthew chapter 18 to finish the parable that Jesus spoke to Peter. To all the disciples, really, but in answer of Peter's question. So again, we're talking about on what basis do we forgive our brethren and to what extent? 10,000 talents is the price, the sum of money that the first servant owed to his master. It's a tremendous amount of money. It's difficult to quantify in exact terms how much money that actually is. But it's a king's ransom. You could not, in many lifetimes, make, that, make enough money, the average person, to be able to pay back this king's ransom. This amount of money, this amount of money, is used to represent the vast, the incalculable debt that mankind owes to God because of sin. And with this servant, when it was determined that he couldn't pay the debt, the king commanded that he and his family and all that he had would be sold until payment was received. And the servant humbles himself before the king in our parable, and he asks not for forgiveness, but for time. He doesn't ask to be forgiven of the debt. He asks for time. And you think, this guy, he's not really, he doesn't really realize how much he owes and how much time he would need to pay it back. Uh, he says, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. He didn't understand or fathom the insurmountable debt that he owed to the master. He thought it more realistic to ask for time than to ask for forgiveness. He thought that paying back the debt was more of a possibility than receiving forgiveness for it. It is more likely that I'll be able to, in a hundred lifetimes, pay back this money than it is that I could receive forgiveness for the debt that I owed. Despite his shortcomings, he loved his wife and his children. He was desperate to keep them from sharing his fate. So the compassion that he had for his family moved him to ask for what he felt was the more realistic scenario, more time. You'll meet some people who will tell you that God can never forgive them for the things that they have done. I've met people like that. They think they've done things that are so horrible that God can never forgive them. They are acutely aware of their position as a sinner, but they're woefully ignorant of the Lord Jesus' position as their Savior. And rather than them having this sense of humility where they're like, yeah, man, they really know how sinful they are, what they're really doing is devaluing the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're saying that the value of the blood of Christ is not worth enough to pay for my sin. That's the mentality. They say, they echo the words of Cain, my sin is greater than can be taken away. And they die in their sins because they believe their sin is greater than the Savior who died for them. You will also meet people who, like the servant, believe that they have the ability to pay back this immense debt owed for sin. 
And they falsely assume, like we mentioned earlier in the message, that good works are an acceptable currency to pay for sin. You'll remember our examples. A murderer isn't dismissed because he saves a life. A robber isn't set free because he, he donates the money. And good works are not an acceptable currency to pay for evil works. It's the equivalent of winning a game of Monopoly and using your winnings to go try to buy a car. would love it if that worked. I'd have lots of cars. Actually, no, because I'm bad at Monopolies. I wouldn't have cars either. My sister used to win all the time. It was a horrible game. You know, yeah, the only thing worse than the outcome of Monopoly is how long it takes to get there. It's like, you know you're going to lose. Like, like, 15 minutes into the game, you know you're losing. It's just a matter of time, you know. <laughs> Stuff's going to auction, you know, and then once you're done, you had to go to bed. So I was like, I don't want to go to bed, so I don't want to lose. Anyways, I digress. Monopoly. The currency does not equate to real-life scenarios, nor does good works equate as a currency to pay for evil. It doesn't work that way. Not in any system. Just as surely as the servant failed to grasp the immensity of the debt that he owed, he also failed to consider the compassion of the king was so much greater than his love for his own family. Such was the compassion of the king that he forgave the debt and he let the man go free. And this, fellow, this servant, having left the presence of the king, uh, he seeks out a fellow servant, not even, you know, not even some, not, a, not, a, not even an authority figure, just a fellow servant, you know, a peer, and demands of him this large but comparatively smaller debt by contrast. The amount of money owed by the fellow servant was 100 pence, or roughly 100 days' wages for a soldier or laborer. It's a lot of money, all right? And the fact that it's a lot of money by itself tells us that the wrongs that we do to one another, the debts that we owe to one another, are great. Jesus is not diminishing the value or the cost of what it is to hurt somebody else. He didn't say it's this little bit of money. Like 100 days' wages is a lot of money. And those are the equivalent of, of like how we wrong each other and the value of those. It's only as we compare that amount of money, that cost, to the cost that we owe, do we really see the contrast. And that's what this man failed to do. So here's an application. What happens? What does he do? He takes this man, this fellow servant, and he throws him in prison. Same thing. The judgment that he was supposed to receive, he stands on the side of justice and he takes that servant and he throws him in prison until the debt should be repaid. When we are unwilling to forgive others, we take that person who has wronged us and theoretically we, we throw them in prison. We do the same thing. We put them in a place uh, where they don't have the opportunity to behave in such a way as to restore to some degree that in which they have wronged us. We take and we, we put them in prison. And while we hold them into this prison of our own making, what we fail to consider is what we forfeit in the process. We forfeit the peace of God because we've grieved God's spirit withholding the forgiveness that he has not withheld from us. And we, we forfeit the joy that we could have by being able to extend a small taste of the mercy that we have received. The man who failed to show mercy was taken by the king. This first servant was taken by the king and delivered to tormentors until his own debt was paid. And so here's this tremendous lesson that we should learn. When we fail to forgive our brothers and sisters for the trespasses against us, we are not being mindful of the great measure that we ourselves, measure of mercy that we ourselves have received from God. And while we may lock them in a prison, we are the ones who are tormented. Do you get that? This man wouldn't forgive his brother this debt, having been forgiven so much, and he's taken and given to the tormentors. We are spend the rest of our lives, if we hold on to this bitterness, being tormented. And little by little, this bitterness and unforgiveness creeps into every aspect of our life and changes us 
and makes us people that we don't want to be. And so Jesus closes the parable with, this, with this, uh, this charge. So also shall my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you do not, from your, uh, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. There are consequences both in this life and as we stand before the judgment seat of Christ for refusing to extend the smallest measure of mercy to our brother compared to the great mercy that we have received from God. In closing, I want to uh, read a passage in Ephesians chapter 4. I said we'd finish there. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. I think it holds the key uh, to applying this in a very practical way because I can say, great, don't be bitter. You know, and then you take that and you're like, well, how do I do that? I think Ephesians 4 gives us some good keys on how to apply these truths to our, li- our lives. I'm going to read it uh, from the ESV. It says, Ephesians 4, we're going to begin in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. He's saying, don't follow the pattern of the world. What we do as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is counterculture. Don't follow the advice of the world because it's not going to match what the scripture is saying. It's not going to be good advice. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you, each one of you, speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down upon your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And finally, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We are only expected to forgive in the same measure that we have been forgiven. And as we struggle with this concept of forgiveness and bitterness, hold on to these truths that we have from God, that we don't follow the counsel of the world and the unsaved. We put off our old self. We renew the spirit of our mind in the word of God and in prayer. We put on the new man. We be angry. We allow ourselves to get angry, but we don't sin. We don't ruminate. We don't hold on to these thoughts and think evil in our hearts. Don't let the sun go down upon your anger. Don't allow Satan that place in our hearts. Don't give him that ground in your heart as you ruminate on these horrible thoughts. Guard your uh, mouth against corrupt talk. Don't grieve the Spirit of God and put away bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander with all malice. Don't give place to these things. And let the mercy that we show to others be energized by the mercy that we have received from God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, for these truths that we could learn. Father, this is a the life that we live in is a difficult life. We face many challenges. 
our hearts are inclined toward evil, Father. Even as we have trusted you as our Savior, we still have tendencies, Father. We still tend to think evil and feel bitter, and we're, we're also very vulnerable to hurt and to betrayal. And the relationships that we have on this earth, Father, are complicated. And as we resolve the issues that we have between each other, Father God, I pray that we would keep these truths in mind and not allow ourselves to cut each other off and, and not give place to bitterness and certainly not take it lightly as to think that we could do so and think that there are no consequences. May our interactions with one another be ever mindful that we have received such great mercy from you, Father God, that every, everything that we do should always reflect back on how much we were forgiven, how much you loved us, and the debt that we owed you that the Lord Jesus Christ paid for, the currency being his blood. And as we keep this at the forefront of our mind, Father God, let it influence the way that we address and interact with one another, Father God. And let us, all that we show toward one another and the way that we behave toward one another be an outflow of you in us, working in us, changing us, making us more like yourself. And as we do so, Father God, let it be a testimony to those around us that truly Christ is in us and we are his. We give you thanks in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.